0: Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today, I'm talking to CMO of Heineken USA, Johnny Cowell. Johnny started his marketing career, maybe somewhat unusually, by actually studying marketing in college. He worked agency side before joining Diageo to work on Budweiser and Guinness. He headed up marketing at 02 before moving to Heineken, spending four years in Russia, then moving to Amsterdam, and in 2018 he moved to head up Heineken's US portfolio, which includes Heineken, Tikade, and Das Equus, which many will know for the famous most interesting man in the world campaigns. Which Johnny has said was like getting the white album and being asked to write the follow-up. With a career like that, we have so much to discuss. We get to talk about Johnny's time living with steel factory workers in Russia, his views on universal human behaviours, being a good client creating a great culture on his team, making sure everyone has a voice and the magic of managing the C-suite. So sit back, grab a beer, preferably a Heineken or Heineken Zero and open your world to the world of Johnny Cow. Johnny, thank you so much for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Uh, this is the first in-person podcast I've done. So this is very exciting. Not only to have you here, but doing it in person. So thanks a for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Happy to
1: drop in. Managed to be back in Ireland for a few days doing family stuff, etc. So great to finally
0: catch up. We've talked about it for a while. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I've talked brilliant. about the introduction, some of the amazing brands that you've worked with. Um, but you you started out wanting to be in marketing. Like you, Your mm. degree was in marketing. How did that come about? What was it about marketing from a, an early age you loved?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's an unusual one that you find people who are in the discipline still, right, as we get a little bit older uh, and who did marketing back at college and probably always wanted to yeah. do it. And that's definitely true. Um, I think I was always passionate about sort of brands and fascinated by them. Um, you know, I can remember like staring at the the old ad for Cadbury's Eclairs, the, the sweets. Uh, and if, if any, I'm dating myself, but when, <laughs> when they used to split the sweet right, and the chocolate, yeah, and, or the, <laughs> yeah. And, the, and the chocolate on the inside was heart shaped, and I remember thinking that can't be, that can't be true, you know, and being fascinated by the TV, uh, just the the way it manifested itself on TV. And, and trying to slice open the sweets at home to have a look <laughs> inside to see was it real. Uh, the smash Martians were, yeah. were my heroes, you know, the, the old potheads. Uh, often amazing insight, right, which is only humans would be crazy enough to peel potatoes and mash them. Um, so I was always kind of fascinated by just brands and, and the art of advertising, I guess. Right. Um, and so was fortunate. I had uh, an uncle who worked at Smurfit, and uh, he was uh, on, the, on the sort of graduate program there and went into marketing. I wasn't even sure what it was. Um, And then I saw it in the the CAO and and thought, yeah, let's go study this. And actually, that was the first lecture, Um, you know, and they were really were starting at the start. I mean, the guy walks in with Kotler and he's like, right, we're going to read all of this. Right. Uh, Once I got over the fear, there was a sense of like, this is amazing. And he gave a very short lecture on premium pricing. And I just thought, wow, that's fascinating that you can find ways to command a premium through the value of your brand. And my head exploded. And from from there on in, I I wanted to be in that world and to an extent still do. So a lot of times as a CMO, the question you get is like, what's next? Do you want to be a CEO or right. a president? And I'm still grappling with that because deep down, this is, this is what I love doing.
0: The marketing is yeah. where the passion is. It's-
1: yeah, I think you also, you know, it seems obvious, but there's this sense of if you love something, you tend to. Not try harder, because I think everyone's trying as hard as they can yeah. most of the time. Um, but if you love it, you tend to really lean into it and then you might be better at it. And therefore, there's a kind of a virtuous circle. So, look, we all have Wednesdays when you wake up and think, oh, God, no matter <laughs> what, engineering, marketing, astrophysics. But, but most days I wake up and think, wow, look at, look at what I get to do for a living, you yeah. know, which is just great. Very, very, very lucky. Amazing. You, you spent time in Diageo? Yeah, uh, and and learned the trade there. You know, a really brilliant brand-building experience. So, left college and uh, worked in an agency not too far from here. So, uh, design in, and then below-the-line promotional agency called Originate, uh, which was part of Light's group where probably everyone in Dublin uh, worked at some point or knew someone who worked doing pub promotions and sampling yeah. and so on. That was their spin-off agency. Uh, but over time, that was a great experience. It taught me how to be a decent client. I haven't been agency side for a while. right? Which I still try to remember because I think a lot of the client behavior is, is pretty iffy. Um, and But Diageo became a client uh, or Guinness UDV as it was then and I was lucky enough to be invited over so I got poached by the client. <laughs> Um, and went in as uh, again into the sort of below the line side of the business in okay. um, implementing pub promotions, uh, sponsorships, etc. cetera, and then finally switched over into brand. So we got to work on the Guinness brand uh, and Budweiser and then ultimately on Guinness Global. But probably, you know, it's, it's still a very iconic marketing led business. Yeah. Uh, and like some of your previous guests, I guess I I learned my trade there and I learned the fundamentals and still use things that I learned then today. Um, So yeah, that was a brilliant,
0: brilliant experience. What are some of those things that have stood with you today?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we probably didn't, I mean, insights became very fashionable and it's a bit of of an overused term in the sense that who doesn't want an insight? Like I never met a marketeer who said, like, I'd want to be deliberately, you know, N- not insightful. You know, that's <laughs> not going to work. Um, but I think there was a real commitment to insight-based thinking, right. and that was new. Like, that was a real sense of, you know, not what, but why. Uh, which now seems self-evident. But even if I looked at things like media, you know, connection moments and media planning where it was like looking for the absolute sort of perfect Venn diagram between like what you're saying, when you're saying it and where you show up, which has become very sophisticated with, you know, programmatic and digital. And this is long before that. Um, that kind of sense of commitment to doing it right. Yeah, I think is probably the thing that sticks with me.
0: Am I right in saying that like to, to kind of get insights you've you've done work where you've kind of lived with or followed consumers you've um am I right maybe in telephone O2 you might have done a bit of that like yeah, s- we're sitting with them in their in their world
1: in their homes yeah. and, and actually you know again this the CMI and insights folks you know they, we are very and in in our business today in the US we're very committed to you know ethnographic research and embedding ourselves in different cultures I've been blessed um, doing it here in in Ireland, um, but also, you know, spent three days uh, with uh, consumers who worked in a steel factory in southern Russia um, okay. and and literally handed in my phone, lived with them, went to work with them, went on the bus with them, you know, a very different world. Um, I was brought to school in Colombia as the show and tell. I was, I was this little girl, sort of, she brought me to school okay. to show me the foreign <laughs> guy who was researching <laughs> her family. Um on malt drinks which right. are effectively a, a, a you know a breakfast bar but in liquid form all across uh, South and Central America and most of the equator around the world so yeah I've been very fortunate to be sort of parachuted into lots of environments yeah um, and someone said you know it's consumer immersion and you know the consumers. I think are frequently called people. people. <laughs> it's just um, a human. <laughs> human, you know, and you're sitting in those homes with yeah. people who live a very different life to you. Um, and in other ways, so much of what you see is so recognisable that the more you do it, and the more you go to these different environments and meet these different people, the more you realise
0: there's m- as much as unites us yeah. as our as our differences. And do you think that? Because definitely one of the things that comes up a lot is people talk about differences, like you know. UK is different to Ireland Cork's different to Dublin but like how do you kind of deal with that
1: yeah I think you have to I mean it's always a tension and if you go and work on global brands and in global organisations everybody uh, you know is saying we're completely different um, but I think you have to start with what are the things that are similar for yeah. people, right? So we love the same way. We get angry the same way. Betrayal is betrayal. Jealousy, you know, yeah. those kind of things are human emotions. Humor can be different by market. There's a tonality. But I think we sometimes mistake differences for differences in tone or execution. Yeah. But I'm, I'm the more, longer I'm doing this, and it's long enough now, <laughs> um, th- you know, I'm more and more convinced that there are fundamental drivers of human. behavior that are pretty much the same, whether you're in Croatia, Colombia or Connecticut. Um, And yeah, you might need to execute differently. And tone of voice is important. Um, I was listening to Emer a few weeks ago talking about like that type of humor that they use, you know, at Paddy Power fair. And so there's there's definitely tonal differences. But I also think we need to spend lots of time thinking about what's similar Um, You know, if I look at Heineken, which is in 185, 186 countries, so we're not the biggest beer brand in the world, but we are the most global. A lot of the work works everywhere. And yes, there are nuances for Heineken Cup in UK and Ireland. Um, And no, we're not running that in the US. But if we want to run a soccer ad, which isn't about soccer or football, I should call it. You can hear my American (laughs) time going through. Um, That's about passion. Now, passion right. is passion. Yes. Uh, and lots of people are passionate. An Italian uh, is passionate, so is someone in California. Yeah. Um, so I think those things are, there's more similarities. I think it's about minding
0: tone and local delivery. Unless your brand is completely local, then, of course, it's a completely different. Yeah. And you talked about kind of going, I guess, going client side. So what you learned in an agency, you brought that to, you know, being a client. What were some of those things? I, I've i worked in agencies and I think having seen some of the things you don't know that goes on in a client, yeah. it can be surprising when you're on the other side. What are some of the things that you have been able to bring across from this, those agency days?
1: Yeah, I think the, it goes to some fairly human characteristics. And we tried to do it in, I think, most, hopefully most of the departments and teams I worked in. It firstly goes to respect. Right. Um you know I I still see people turning up at let's say ad agencies as as an example you know at the creative presentation with their phones I mean why why have you got your phone with you right. Um these people have worked for 3 4 weeks off a brief to deliver the work and you only ever get to see the work for the first time once that right. feeling never comes back that moment when they flip the, yeah, the yeah. slide or the script and you think wow and if you're not attentive to that, you can miss amazing work. So I think the first thing goes to respect, which hap- which is hard work, right? So yeah. respect shows up in the brief, you know, if... I always find this process quite hilarious. That client writes a brief, gives it to an agency whose strategic planner rewrites the brief, yes. and then gives it to the creatives. Like if the brief was good enough in the first place, it could go straight to the creative team. And he, uh, both philosophically, but also financially, you shouldn't be paying somebody two hundred and fifty dollars an hour to rewrite the thing that you and your team just spent four weeks yes. or six Laboured months working <laughs> on. Um, so I think you've got to be you've got to be human. You've got to really try and, and give them the inputs that they need. Yeah. Be incredibly clear. Um, I think anyone who's worked at agency side knows how hard it is when the first question is like, what do they want? If that's not clear, you're already on a suicide mission. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to be candid, but also considerate. And that goes like where that shows up is in the feedback loop. Um, I see so often just really... Um, flabby feedback that doesn't give the agency something to go on, Um, that patronising sense of like, no, we really liked it, but when everybody in the room, including the creatives and the agency, know that you hated it. Um, So I think you have to call those things very authentically, but also be gentle, right? Because ideas are fragile. Yes. And most of us, I think, have had that experience that it's so easy to accidentally kill the world-class idea early. They're fragile. Yeah. Um, And you have to hold them gently and protect them. Um, So I think when you go client side, the thing that strikes me and I try to drive into the groups I'm fortunate enough to work with is, you know, the agency are an extension of your team. And therefore, would you treat your colleagues like this? Yeah. And if, if you want to make it transactional, then you're going to get transactional work. Yeah. At the same time, I think what agencies sometimes miss is, you know, when something is pitched to the client, you know, that that in inverted commas, like the client, like it's some amorphous blob, yeah. <laughs> like the client is a bunch of people. We then become the account directors and creatives. So um, it's also true that sometimes you hear that conversation on the agency side about how terrible the client is. What would they know? Yeah. What would they know? Yeah. They don't understand. They don't know what they need. They don't yeah. know what they want. Um, but you pick up those ideas and then you become the agency internally. Because you, you have to a, sell them. Correct. Yeah. The creative director in the agency or the planner doesn't take the idea to the CEO of the organization. The CMO does. Yeah. Um, so you are actually much more invested in each other than maybe everybody realizes. Yeah. But I just think it goes to, you know, really treating the agency as an extension, um, avoiding that sort of transactional stuff, but really having the guts not to be patronizing or to step away from real feedback. Yeah. And look, it's hard, right? When you're starting out as a brand manager, you know, you don't really know. And feedback is a skill and it's yeah. an art, right? And you could be dealing with conflict aversion. You could be dealing with the agencies or your, the, the people in the agency or your friends um, whatever yes, dynamics yeah, are going yeah. on, um, it's sometimes hard to give truly authentic feedback. But it changes everything because if you get that relationship with the agency, then you get real trust, and then the work, yeah. fo- the the work flows. Yeah. Um, I'm amazed, though. I still see so often how badly clients treat agencies, and vice versa. Yeah, um, bad briefs going in, bad work coming out. Um, every client every client has experienced cannon fodder from the agencies. Like, I don't need six ideas because you feel you need to give us six ideas of which three you also hate. (laughs) Um,
0: Let's just have the three that you believe in, you know? So there's behaviours on both sides. I think we have to be careful. And then I think sometimes the, you know, a brand manager is trying to second guess what their marketing director or CMO believes. So they're in a difficult position where they're being handed this part of the brand or the brand, yeah. and they're trying to figure out, oh, like, I'm, my, my CMO won't like that. I've heard that before, like, oh, yeah. you know, so-and-so won't like this. You know? Yeah, or my CFO won't like <laughs> well, it, which I yeah, find yeah, also yeah, hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's little tricks and,
1: and things that we try to do. Um, I, and I learned this in Russia, actually, which I, di- I didn't do this when I was working on brands here in Ireland because I didn't have probably the, the self-awareness to do it. Um, I'm passionate about marketing so I can't help myself piling in on on the ideas. (laughs) Russia was more hierarchical in terms of how things work so I learned to go last as the most senior person in the room. So now what I do in the US where we have a very sort of democratic uh, environment culturally uh, in work, uh, we start with the interns. So when the agency presents, I want to know what the brand manager thinks way before the brand director or the VP or me because we have dominant thoughts right so if I say as the CMO oh, I'm not sure about this guess guess yeah. what the narrative is right the yeah. way down the chain and that is such a waste of an opportunity because we might be working on something in web 3 where I really need to know what the 24 year old brand manager yes. thinks yeah. because I'm also grappling with this new technology and the new stacks and new everything to work out what are we doing um, so We tend to start with the most junior people in the room, which seems like obvious now, we didn't always do that, uh, which I regret. Um,
0: But yeah, that's been very, very helpful for us. Yeah, because you get a totally different perspective, you know, because again, we have a a worldview based on our experiences, how we've been brought up and, you know, having somebody who's got difference is exactly what you want because it's in the difference of their perspectives that you kind of get to better.
1: Yeah and I think that's been one of the realizations I've haven't been fortunate enough to kind of move around a bit um you have to watch the homogeneity. You yeah. have to, you know, if if the planner, the creatives, the client, if everybody's from Malahide or BlackRock yeah. or or, you know, let's call it the agency client landscape in Dublin or London or wherever. If it's too homogenous, you're going to probably get vanilla. Yeah. You get a lot of agreement. And actually, when you work in environments where you know nothing. Um, which I again was is very stressful. Like when I went to Russia, your playbook goes out the window. Like I I couldn't do the things I'd done at Diageo or at O2. Um, but when I'm working on college football, which is a religion in yes. the Southern US, and it you know Saturdays are more important than Sundays um, in in sports land in the US, and you know I don't understand <laughs> that the nuances of that subculture. Yes, that's great. Because once you realise that, then you bring together the groups of people who understand. Or we're working on authentic Mexican brands and it's so easy to lean into the tropes and the cliches, right? And then you think, hold on a second, you know, this is a much deeper level of insight that's needed. So we have to build very diverse teams to understand that perspective. We were working recently on Tecate, which is a beautiful Mexican brand. It's all about authenticity. Um, And you know, everyone talks about Mexican-Americans, but they're American-Mexicans. Right. 73% of of American-Mexicans who are under 35 were born Mm. in America. Yeah, yeah. So, and brands talk about, like, you're half Mexican, half American. And what the people were saying back to us is, no, I'm 100% American and I'm 100% Mexican. Okay. I'm a 200-percenter. Right. Not a 50-50. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I want to embrace... Both, Both of those sides. cultures. And it's e- you think, OK, that's interesting. We can work with that. When you talk to those consumers, those people, they said, you know, it's so tough because when I go to Mexico, I'm not Mexican enough. Right. But when I'm in the bank in San Francisco, I'm the Mexican. Right. So it's they have this like duality and this conflict and all of that sort of tension and all of that pride and all of that passion and all of the sort of energy but they also have a, a really tough time balancing the the desire and the feeling of like, I'm both. So they, you know, they, they would say to us, I, you know, I I don't dance. I don't like spicy food. But and I go home and my grandmother teases me, you know. But then well, you bring me back to Morgan Stanley in New York, and I'm the Mexican. And you think, wow, like it's way more complex yeah. than you realize. So, we're very fortunate to have, I suppose, to try to build diverse teams to unlock those empowering insights. Yeah, yeah, and and not
0: yeah, just not assume that you you know. More than than others.
1: Yeah, it's poking this.
0: It's it's poking the yes. superficiality and yeah. saying like,
1: is that really true? Yeah. Um, and like, there's a lovely familiarity. It's funny. I was, you know, I've been here for a couple of days, and you're watching the, of course, because again, you're a marketing junkie, right? So I'm watching the <laughs> the ads. Um, I'm driving around town. I'm taking it all in, and there's a beautiful familiarity to it. Like it's because we understand the yes. codes, we understand the language. You understand the wink, uh, you know, and the nudge, yes. and all of those things are that are unsaid. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, then the, the the flip is the case is that you know if it all gets too familiar, then it can get a bit wallpapery, yes,
0: yeah. and and that's that's a little that's bit the challenge. Big big risk. Familiarity, and then I think um, constraints. I love to talk about. You went to Russia, yeah, with Heineken, where you can't, as you said, use the normal playbook of. Of marketing, lots of constraints in alcohol advertising yeah. in 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 Russia. How did you how did you approach that? Yeah, it was a re- um, it was a really
1: difficult transition. Um so and of course these you know it, it, it all works out brilliantly in the end right it's like going to the dentist like it's, it's the, the autobiography it that, yeah. that hurts right um, and that, that was that was a tricky move I mean I thought I was going to Portugal so the HR folks in Heineken had said you know you're, you're going to Lisbon so I had my golf clubs packed I was like you know, <laughs> loving myself and uh, I remember coming home from Amsterdam and they'd asked me to go to Russia and, uh, and I got home to the house here in Dublin and, and Louise opened the door and she knew I was going to, to the Netherlands to find out like what the what posting the was. Or. And I said to her, yeah, Russia. And she said, have a great time. <laughs> uh, and it took a few days for, you know, it was my first introduction to freezing temperatures. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, so by the weekend, Lou had come around and we thought we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, but yeah, the playbook went out the window. Um, the, it's also, uh, you know, a d- uh, difficult enough environment because... Part of what you do, uh, especially in the sort of senior roles, it's like now i I don't do that much marketing it's, right it's, you know, which is kind of ironic. Um, you get the big CMO job, but you you do less of it yeah, yeah. because you're really empowering everyone else to do it uh, and getting stuff out of their oh, way right um, but the trick was always to try and build empathy and have the team working with you and and have fun and do all of those stuff. That's very difficult when you don't speak the language. Um, The business is being done in English, but it's not their first language either. So um, it was very hard to build the emotional connections that a lot of good marketing departments run on uh, where we're in this together um and i think that comes up a lot i've been listening to some of your stuff in the car and most of the leaders you talked to they're trying to galvanize teams yes, right yeah. and build this sense of like we're all in this together um that's tough uh so and it had just been declared a, a dark market so our first company conference like one of the one of the sales team put their hand up and the it was a q and a 1000 people in the room and said why do we need a marketing director oh. Welcome. Which was, I thought, a very <laughs> penetrating and interesting question. I was like, that's, that's a great question, you know. Um, but as it turned out, we, we needed marketing more uh, because you actually need, in one way, it was like musical chairs in a dark market. Like the, the equity building, you had what you had. Yeah. Um, and it, it was interesting because it really taught you to double down on the equity position that you own. Because there is no changing it, right? You're not saying, okay, now we're going to be about optimism, or now we're going to be about empowerment. You, you're about you whatever you yeah. you were about when the market goes dark. Um, and all t- to be honest, uh, Connor, it gives you uh, it rebuild my belief in the fundamentals. So you went back to things like distribution, forward stock pressure, pricing ladders. Um, price pack architecture asymmetric pricing um, that was how you won market share and and now what I sort of realise having exited that is it's both because yes. it tends to be a bit of a pendulum right you find yourself in certain businesses that are very brand led or if you will very mechanical and it's actually both Yeah, it's both if you can really uh you know, get both sides of that equation working. And I think what Russia did was it probably recalibrated me a bit away from advertising. Okay, Like I'd come from, from O2 into Heineken um, and did a few months here in Ireland. But like we were very brand sponsorship, yeah. comms led, and we were quite good at it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but we didn't probably spend enough time thinking about some of the retail fundamentals. I mean, we were supporting that side of the business, but Russia brought me back into that world. So it kind of unleashed my inner nerd. I got the Excel spreadsheets back out. Um, But also it taught me simplicity. Um, That brilliant work and brilliant, whether it's innovation or brand building, you've got to make it incredibly simple. Um, Because there what we had was an organization that... Responds to clarity of of the brief, right? So we are launching Amstel. Um, it is you know one ruble more expensive than insert competitor, and here's where you put it on the shelf. Um, and you need that level of simplicity when it's an eleven hour flight from Moscow to your region in the West, right? Yeah, uh, internally. Um, There is no room for interpretation. There's no room for we think this is what they need. Um, So it taught me a lot about the simplicity that's required to get big organizations moving. Um, Seems incredibly obvious, but unless you could distill it down, nothing happened. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was a baptism of a (laughs) baptism of fire. I mean, I arrived in, in St. Petersburg in January, which was a strategic error, let's just say. I opened, like I opened <laughs> it wasn't the, Lisbon anyway. It wasn't Lisbon sure. and I opened the airport doors and thought, holy, holy cow, <laughs> w- what have you done here? Um, but, you know, at the same time, it again goes back to, you know, and you see what's going on in the world right now where, you know, with the Ukraine and, yeah. and, and you know, it's just such a terrible situation. But it did give me an insight as well, which is, you know, Russia and Russians, I mean, the, Russia's just full of people yeah. who are postmen and teachers and bakers and marketing people and they're just trying to send their kids to school and have a better life. What's very sad now is, you know, a 15-year-old girl in Moscow, my daughter's 15, what she does in New York is what she would do in Moscow. You get up, you go to the mall, you go to Shake Shack, yeah, you go right. to Zara, you buy a, some clothes and you go to the movies. Yeah, And that's all going sideways right yeah. now. So, um, But it was very interesting because you were really out of your societal comfort zone. And you were, and it was hard, but it gave you a sense of like the fundamentals of marketing are they're they're pretty the same, you yeah. know, and there's a sense of like these things work and they work everywhere.
0: Yeah. So that was it's, that was a, it's amazing to, you know, I think have made that move, incredibly brave, you know, thing to to maybe, do. Maybe <laughs> foolish. But, uh, but I think that yeah, what is interesting is that you go and then you have to figure out a totally different way of doing of doing marketing and mm. as you say kind of pulling you right back into okay I can't do these things I you know I lean into yeah. so what? what's it going to be now and you you then went to <laughs> so I'm going to Double down and bravery is a theme for for you. Yeah, sure. Low low alcohol, zero alcohol, which wasn't sexy at the time. Like we weren't seeing Heineken zero zero at Formula One Grand Prixs when you did that.
1: No, that was an interesting. (laughs) So I did four years in Moscow, and then the 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 chief commercial officer for Heineken. We we knew that non alcoholic was a big opportunity. Just if you look to the macro trends, health, wellness, moderation, you know and. Even simple stuff, Uh, you know, when when we were in college, you think about, you know, the percentage of people who drank alcohol, right? So, um, you know, 9% of people didn't drink alcohol between the ages of uh, 18 and 25, you know, 20 years ago. That's now 29%. Yeah. Uh, So you have this huge business opportunity. And also you think about it strategically. We have trucks, we have breweries, we have sales reps, we have relationships. We know the people at Tesco or Asda or Carrefour or Walmart. Um, and so you've got this huge opportunity in terms of a global trend and you then have an infrastructure. So we thought there's there's a business there. So my boss um, at the time said to me could you uh, you've done the Moscow thing you, <laughs> you you, couldn't come and do that thing you do where you turn a, a big amorphous blob into a functioning thing I was like well that's not really a brief um, but I'll try it uh, and got to start the the low and no division um, which and, and literally that was that was really interesting because like the first thing I did was pull down a notepad I was like okay structure like who do I need what right. do what, how do we even start Was it blank slate? Blank slate Completely. no team no people um, no real agenda. We had some products in in certain markets around the yeah. world, so there was like a base business there, and we were almost there on the on the global go on Heineken Zero. Which, of course, retrospectively now, I'm, I'm desperately trying to claim you know, <laughs> ownership of that, <laughs> uh, but it's tenuous at best. Um, mind you, it wouldn't be the first time I claimed ownership, of, like all good <laughs> marketeers, of something I didn't actually do. Um, so yeah, we got that whole business unit moving from scratch, and it was. What was interesting there was about galvanizing an organization who'd had 150 years of selling beer.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So, you know, a bit like at Diageo when you worked on Guinness, you were the beer guys in a in a spirits company. Uh, Here we were the the sort of the non alcoholic guys in a in in a beer company. Um, But really exciting to get something going globally. Um, And at the same time, probably the big takeout was for all the strategy. It was also a human. It's a contact business. I mean, you had to get on front of the Opcos around the world okay. and talk them into it. Um, but the, the beauty was that the consumer was driving it. So okay. they, were they were going ready. there and the question was, are we going to be there for them or are we going to let this let this go away so yeah from moscow to amsterdam to low and no it was a it was a f- serious sort of left turn um but you know again global roles and you've yeah. had them and, and and you know all about them um you miss a little bit the being on the ground in your opco like like i have now yeah but the privilege to end up working on you know launching innovations in rwanda in burundi and ethiopia um, Colombia, you know, but also the UK. Yeah. Um, just broadening your mind a little bit and, um, and you know, wrecking your passport um, <laughs> is is like it's really lucky. You feel really lucky yes. to have done yeah. that, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, how that category shows up as well is very interesting. So, you know, it, it's very different uh, how it would show up in Asia versus how okay. it would show up in Europe. We're looking at the US and Europe where typically non-alcoholic had been a distress category, like what you couldn't do. It was about, you know, you were driving, you were sick, you were pregnant, you were, you know, you were struggling. okay These were all um, things you were, in inverted commas, dealing with. Um, and actually, we realized very quickly, strategically, if you could flip the whole category into making it a positive yes, choice. Yeah. And something you affirmed, it's like, this is what I'm doing. And now you can, yeah. which is the Heineken zero line globally. It's genius because it's it's showing you this is no longer about what you're not doing. Yeah, this is about what you are doing because we realise there's loads of moments when people would love a beer, but they don't necessarily want the alcohol. They want the beer. Yeah. Um. So it showed up very differently all over the world. Um. Soft drinks, malt drinks, and around Africa, you know. So you're doing beer and non-alcoholic beer for Dublin and London, but you're doing lunchboxes in Nigeria. Right. half okay. the country go to school on what on dark malt, which is effectively um, a malt-based soft drink. Um, and that's what kids drink in school. Okay. Um, and so you're fueling school. Right. Um, for, you know, the fastest-growing country in the world. Um, and at the same time, you're trying to flip maybe a negative category in New York or London. So the diversity of the global thing is always a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, I mean... I'd always encourage people to if they get a chance to do a global role to grab it. Yeah. Because my God, it it you know expands your brain. Um but it's tough, you yeah. know, because there's a human aspect. You're in New Zealand on Wednesday and you know, there's a barbecue in Sandyford on Saturday, and you better be back there. And you better be smiling and you better be awake. <laughs> nobody cares if you've been to Sydney for the week. Yeah, no, because um, it sounds great. And it is great. And and when you hear people moaning about global roles, you're like, look, look at what you're getting to do. Yeah. Um,
0: but you have to now go in eyes open and know how, how tough it is. Yeah, you know? that exposure to just different cultures, again, it goes back to kind of human, you know, human touch points. And, yes. and then, as we were saying earlier on, like those differences, you know, how do you understand the differences, unpack them and, yeah. you know, all that is is fascinating. And yeah, can, and yeah. we see
1: it even on Heineken globally now, you know, which is almost exclusively positioned in the premium end of the market. Um you know, how premium shows up in Tokyo or yeah. uh, Taiwan versus New York, you know, versus Amsterdam. It's completely different. So so not only does is premiumness evolve, does it, not only is it sort of disparate, it, it, there are certain fundamental truths around premiumness, um, but then it shows up very differently. It sort of manifests itself yes. differently in different geographies, but it's also changing in those geographies. So what premiumness looked like five years ago in Tokyo is not what it looks like today Right um, So it's an evolving thing so you're you're. it's fascinating to try to play with you know how things show up in different places or at different times or with different consumers Yeah I guess that's the kind of Django we, lo- we, we love playing you know <laughs> yeah. um, and you hope you get it right um, but I think also most marketeers will you know maybe not openly admit it but you get it wrong as well a lot of the time and that's That's the trick you've got to create the safety where the teams and you can make mistakes uh, because it's, if everyone could nail an insight every time, then all the work yeah. would be amazing. Amazing. I was, gonna,
0: I was gonna ask you about some of those mistakes and, and mm. what you've learned. Any any stand out for you that go, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) loads Uh, I was trying to explain to someone last week it's
1: you know being a sort of CMO it's like it's like playing baseball you know the best played baseball player in the states uh, hits the ball 37 times out of 100 which means they miss 63 (laughs) times out of of 100 Um, and certainly you miss you miss plenty Um, you know I I look back on some I worked on Budweiser for two years here for Diageo and I'm not proud of the work Um, I'm really not. I. Uh, we just we made some ads. They weren't that good. Um, the brand was struggling um, at the time. It was post-Americana, which yes, was the very core the, of the America brand. America, right? wasn't it, yeah. And then suddenly everyone's on their J1s in Thailand, not in the States. You know, George Bush, uh, Iraq. There was all these different yeah. negative drivers around Americana. And I made the fatal mistake that a marketeer can make, which is I thought we could redefine the brand. And you can sharpen the brand and you can sharpen the insight, but the core of Budweiser is yes. red, white and blue. I mean, we're sitting here on the 4th yeah. of July, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just in its DNA. And we thought, oh, you know what, we're, we're minus six, we're minus seven, we're minus eight. We have to do something. And that was the big insight and the big learning is doing something is, is one thing, but it better be something that's connected to the DNA of the brand. Right. And I look back at that, that was that was a big, big mistake. And, you know, two years of, of work that we, I think, fought, you know, every day because probably somehow deep down you knew it wasn't right, um, forced onto the consumer. Right. Who didn't accept it because it wasn't right um, and spent a lot of money to de- developing work that just wasn't on brand. Which yeah. Seems very straightforward. Now, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, we were trying our best. Yeah. And you have to also understand, respect that and, and sense that we weren't trying to be reckless. But if I look back now, I think there is something where, you know, the work just wasn't that good. Um, but I know why now. I didn't at the time. Yes. Now I know it's because we were trying to make Budweiser something. It couldn't be. Yeah. And if you think of those kinds of brands, Harley, Levi's, Oreos, you know, they have to be about what they're about. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, maybe it's just age or cynicism. I think sometimes you have to wait for the market to come back to you. And now okay. you can't sit back and just yeah, yeah. chill out. But. <laughs> americana was was not having its moment um so that was a reality and and we railed against that unsuccessfully um you know apart from that i mean I think you get you have to also have perspective um and we talk about this all the time if if making advertising particularly which is a very public failure yes, if you make an advertising um I mean look at any TV break I mean not all of it's that good most of it isn't Yeah. Um, if it was really easy we'd all make great ads all the time Yeah. Um, and that's whether you're a client or whether you're an agency um, every ad you know Rothko made uh, a very iconic brilliant ad agency they're not all good yeah, yeah. every ad we made on O2 they weren't all good there was plenty of okay stuff yeah. in there um, and that's alright you know because you don't hit home runs no. every time if you did Everyone would do it. How do you create that culture now? Your team is. We talk a lot about safety and creating an environment where people are, it's okay to f- not fail. That sounds so trope, you know, fail, fail. Nobody wants to fail. Nobody wants to fail. Failing sucks. Um, it, it's really awful. But we talk, I mean, we have a very simple rule. In, even when everyone joins, the first thing we say is you'll never be fired for a screw up, but you might be fired for a cover up. Okay. Um, that's because we want brand managers to come in and say, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Or I think I have a problem. Uh, And I think that's maybe having been in the discipline. Um, I was talking to someone a a couple of weeks ago and and she was struggling because she was $100,000 over budget. And I remember what that feels like as an assistant brand manager. And, you know, that sense of like, I think I'm going to go home and like start crying or throw up or... And in, my, in your world now, I'm like, don't worry, like we can fix this. Yeah. Because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Right. And we had it fixed. And of course, you're not trying to encourage your teams to be 100 grand over budget every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's more important she came yes. and had the conversation because then she doesn't spend the weekend at home stressed out yeah. or freaking out because we've dealt with it. So I think what we try to do is just create an environment where it's like you have to know why you're doing things. Because recklessness isn't okay and casualness isn't okay. But if it misses, as long as what you were trying to do made sense. Yeah. Because also if you think about what we do, it is an imprecise science. We've all had the world's greatest script and it just didn't get made right. Yes. So sometimes it's the insight. Sometimes it's the strategy. Sometimes it's the brand. Sometimes it's the script. Sometimes it's the execution. Yeah. And any one of those can take you out. Yeah. Um so it's not easy what we do. Um, so you have to create space for it not to land perfectly. And I think uh, I hope that that's the kind of leader or boss that, you know, that people would say, OK, well, you know, we're not creating fake stress. We're not creating fake outrage. Um, sometimes things don't land, but it depends on what you were trying to do. And I think that's an unlocker at the moment. We're seeing people who who stay in the department, who try stuff. And also as a marketing leader, yeah, you're under pressure to deliver like the goods, right? Yeah. And people want to see the good stuff. But if you if you crucify people for failure, then they tighten up. And if they tighten up, the the best work that's in them isn't going to come yes. out, right? Because everyone's, it, it's like someone says, you know, don't hit it in the lake. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't looked at the lake. Yeah. <laughs> now all I can see is the lake. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think you want to make sure you're going to get the best out of people and you don't have the right to only get the best out of people you have to actually build time with them and support them and then their best will come yeah so we try to be light-handed in terms of when things don't land we you know we don't blow the
0: blow the place up yeah which is and and i think from talking to people who have worked for you before nothing but good things right are said people genuinely adore having worked for you and and mm-hmm. I can say that from talking to a good few people that, that have what other things do you look to do as a leader to and I'm sorry I don't mean you go out of your way to say I want people to love me it's not that no. but it's just genuinely when people reflect on the time they've spent with you mm. as a leader they appreciate the learning that they had with you so what other things do you do to kind of help people you know
1: it's yeah well I'm flattered uh, a, a little bit um like it's kind of quite simple in a in a way. Like you know, step one: try not to be a dick. <laughs> um, like you know, we sold sim cards and beer. Yeah, like it's not that important. Also, it's like everybody takes needs to take a breath. Um, and I think it goes to horrendously overused, but like a bit of authenticity. So, um, I, I think I made a decision a long time ago that. I wanted to be me and okay. and to recognize myself and that that would go, that would take me as far as it would take me. And we'd see. Uh, and look, we're, we all grew up in the scene here, right? So you can imagine like when I got appointed as CMO of Heineken USA, like the first thing my mates say to me is like, you are so going to get found out. <laughs> you know, there's no, oh, my God, you're amazing. You know, yeah, yeah, The first text is like, oh, you are way out of your depth here, pal. Um, oh, and And maybe they're right, (laughs) you know. Um, So I think I tried to be me and to go to organisations that were, you know, were receptive to you being yourself. Right. Um, And so, and and that I wouldn't sell my soul. Because then if you're being yourself, then some people are going to like you. Some people
0: aren't going to like you.
1: That's also life. There's plenty of people around town who don't like us, any of us, right? But I think it was about that decision, which is, you know what, I'm going to do this as me and we would see where that goes. Um, And that has fortunately. And I think actually reflecting on that now, that's the unlocker. Right. Because you're not trying to be someone you're not. Yeah. So therefore, you're quite authentic, which gets you a lot of empathy, which gets you a lot of discretionary effort, which means the marketeers around me have worked super hard, which has been very beneficial for me, selfishly. Yeah, yeah. But it all goes back to that kind of circle, let's say. Um, So try to, yeah, try to be yourself. Try to be kind. I have, um, I have a very, like now a strongly held belief, like kindness and performance. They're just, they're not mutually exclusive. There's this old, you know, 1990s philosophy is like, you know, we've got to grind it out. Yeah. I don't think you have to grind it out at all. Like we we have the best jobs in the world. It should be fun. Um, They're hard. But you can be incredibly kind and be very performance driven. Yes. Um, and I don't think you have to be one or the other. Um, and probably asking a lot and, and, you know, I don't know is a very underused phrase. And I think marketeers are particularly bad at saying it. Yes. Because we're meant to be a little bit intuitive and we're meant to be quick. Um, and I suppose learning and having the confidence to say, say you don't know, has helped, right, because that brings people in. Yes. But mostly is just trying to think about like, what's going on? Um, You know, these are just people the same as you and we're all just trying to do our best. Like as in what's going on in people's lives? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and reflecting on what, as you get a bit more senior, reflecting on the difference you can make by how you show up. Right. Um, You know, if, if, like, I don't know how many people are in the department back in the US, but if I text someone on a Friday and say, like, that was great work. Yeah. Like that, if, if they're 25 and a brand manager, like that makes their weekend. Yes. Not yeah. because they need affirmation from me. It's just a nice thing to yes. do because somebody's just launched something. um, Or you call someone and just say, you know, take Monday and Tuesday off because you spent last weekend in Mexico in an innovation lab doing whatever. The fact that you acknowledge those things, I think you try to be try to be human yes. um, so yeah I, I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's uh, like a special skill I think it's just a, uh, trying to be yourself a little bit and be pretty straight and there's yeah I, I can be difficult at times to, to work with um, I have tons of intuition I love my own ideas Right. <laughs> um, you know I, I, like I do sometimes think I'm awesome uh, which must be really grating <laughs> Um, and so you have to learn to step away from that stuff as as well so a bit of humility um, but
0: yeah sometimes also you know just
1: leaning in and and trying to be human
0: yeah yeah. it's it's really interesting just when you talk about that I I remember a good while back somebody had said to me on my team um, you know you didn't ask me how my weekend was and I was like oh wow Mm -hmm. like I and I thought I was kind of empathetic and kind of, you know, approached life that way. Like, and yeah. I was like, my God, you're such an asshole. Like, what a simple question you can ask somebody on a on a Monday morning. Yeah. And it has, has a, a profound effect and I often say to this person, you know, thank you for what you said. Yeah. Because it completely changed how I thought about it. Yeah, and you catch yourself a bit yeah. and think, Christ,
1: you know, if, look, you can be having a really s- stressful day, but maybe people don't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's it's a consciousness like you say and and realizing like it takes two seconds to start yeah. the conversation with like how are you doing or what's going on or how was that or was that okay yeah. or was the feedback too much um or was it too candid I mean people everyone says they want candor, but candor hurts
0: yes it's yeah a, are you it, ready for it are like, you ready yeah. for it and
1: you know I don't think I wanted candor from uh my leaders when I was really junior and learning like and I was fortunate I worked for very talented marketeers. Yeah. But they were good and they knew stuff and they 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 could leave a mark, right? Now, you're learning and you're getting the feedback, but I remember it hurting a few yes, times. Yeah, yeah. Was I better because of it? Absolutely. Um, but was I nervous going to see Paul Kelly when I was a brand manager? Yeah. Of course I was, because Paul's an excellent marketeer. Yeah, yeah. And he knew way more than I did. Um, and he was helping me. Yeah. You know, I probably didn't know that at the time. Um, And feel very privileged. I've worked with lots of people like that. So you're trying to moderate your feedback and think about the person's needs and, and, you know, how the market might leave. Um, Because you can sometimes be clumsy. Yes. Um, And then you, then there's humility. I mean, we get this question a lot you know, what's the business? To, and you can imagine through COVID, for example, you know, every bar in the world shuts. It's yeah, yeah. kind of an issue for us. <laughs> um, and, but in Heineken USA, people are like, you know, what? what's the plan? What are we going to do? And the first thing we said as a management team was like, we don't have a manual. Like, yes. it's not like the management team are sitting yes, in the yeah, boardroom yeah. and we're able to say, oh, we know what We've to do. We've all the answers. Yeah, so yeah. the first thing we said was, we don't know what to do. Okay. But what we do commit to is... Hum- humanity, care, kindness, we'll keep, we'll over communicate, the things yes. we could control. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, because sometimes there's a sense like the bosses know what to do. Sometimes the bosses don't know what yeah. to do. Um but yeah, we're trying to sort of keep it calm. I think that's that's the key. You know? <laughs> and how
0: about then your C-suite relationships? How you know your working relationship with the this difficult CFO and CEO? How have you managed those over time? Yeah, I mean look, there there are there's no sort of a single homogenous
1: C-suite colleague, right? They're all a little bit different. Um, and you You learn things that will work and things that won't work with different. And and that's just good management, right? You have to flex your style based on people's needs. Some people need more data. Some people need more feeling. Some people need it to be sold. Some people will kill you if you're selling. Right. Um, And you got to have the, and we're supposed to be master communicators. So, I mean, I think a good CMO does and should have the ability to be a master storyteller to their colleagues. Right. But it can't be casual. You can't just rock up and pitch it to the CFO if that's not the type of character they are. You have other CFOs or CEOs where you can pitch it in the elevator and it's fine. Yeah. That's, their, that's their kind of way of doing stuff or you might need something more formal. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to work for Danuta Gray at, yeah. at O2 and, and Danuta is a nuclear physicist and she used to poke us and say, lads, it's not rocket science <laughs> and I know. <laughs> uh, and she she knew what rocket science was. She could do the numbers, you know. Um, so there was a, you know, a super intelligent, very empathetic, um, very people-oriented leader yeah. who people loved working for but she had, you know, a massive analytical uh, need as well. So, the way you sold in inverted commas to Danuta, but you never sold because she was three steps ahead <laughs> of you the whole time. But, like, the way you engaged was different, maybe, to yeah. Maggie, who I work with now, is the CEO in, in Heineken USA, who is, uh, you know, very smart, very analytical, but very empathetic. Right. So, Maggie wants to understand how's this work going to make people feel okay right? Danuda okay. wanted to understand how's this work going to imp- what are they going to do right, right? And, and then you drill into it so I think you have to be flexible you have to be dexterous you have to be a master storyteller and you have to be able to sell your work and if you can't like you have to self-reflect like think about it even logically I struggle to sell the work internally but do you want that company to pay you a shed load of money to sell it to everybody else <laughs> in the world <laughs> But you can't do it across the floor. So I think marketeers need to be, you know, more honest with themselves Is like get better at it because it's part of the job, especially if you want to get the really big seats. Right. Um, I did the Marketing Institute uh, uh, conference a couple of years ago. I was back here. And and it's funny, all over the world, you get asked that question, like, how do you influence the CFO? Yeah. And I, I kind of reject. That notion, this idea that the marketing folks are the poor relations sitting, you know, luckily at the boardroom table. Like, get your seat, get in there and become indispensable to the business. And if you're indispensable, your CFO is looking at you thinking, he or she is the only one here who can do those things. Right. The rest of us can, your head of operations, your head of finance, your head of logistics, your head of IT, they have skill sets. And there are certain things that they can do but they're somewhat repeatable. The opportunity as a CMO is to embed yourself in the boardroom because there are things that only you can do. Only you can change the trajectory of the company because you own innovation. Right. So we have this kind of tension of like, how do I get on the table or at the table? How do I influence the CFO? But look at the tools we have at our disposal. Yeah. We own innovation. We own media. We own comps. We own the consumer So if you own all of those things and you're not being heard at the boardroom table, you need to also have a chat with yourself. Right. And we have to, I believe, we have to get past this inferiority complex of like, you know, well, what about us? Like, get in there and take the seat. And the answer I gave at, at at, at the Institute was either get better at it or if you're good at it, but you're just fundamentally in a company that doesn't want to hear it. And don't Go. waste your time. Right. Because you're not going to change the culture.
0: How do you know the difference between if you're good at it versus they don't want
1: to hear it? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, I think you you gather a body of experience and you, you put the work together and over time you're getting feedback from what happens in the commercial entities you work in. Um, you do more campaigns, you launch more things, you build more teams and on average, more of it works. So you start to get a sense of like, I think I know what I'm doing here. Um, But you also have to go with your instincts and not try to manage what you think. You mentioned it earlier, working out what you think they want to hear. This is half the issue is like, if the CMO is contextualising everything by what he or she thinks the CFO wants, who cares what the CFO wants? It's what the
0: consumers yeah. want that's important. So bringing that insight into the Bringing it in the door.
1: Yeah. But we, you know, we, the, the complaint, um, and I, I can imagine people will listen to this and say, that's easy for you because you've a senior CMO job and you've got your stripes, right? You, you've kind of established. But it, you have it, that the fairy doesn't come and give you that yeah. you have to get there yeah um, you have all these tools and everybody says well they have all the money well they don't they just unlock the money yeah. you have all That's the good. money yeah you're just asking for a signature yeah you're just and, and you should be bringing your cfo in on the journey because you're going to need them yeah um, but i don't think we should be you know turning up with the bowl uh, you know Oliver style and, yes. and sort of asking yeah, yeah. like, oh, you know, would you would you mind if we did this? Because your home run as a CMO, um, that can change everything. And the CFO might bring you from an eleven percent margin to a ten, point, you know, an eleven point two percent margin. That changes a lot. But you might launch something that's completely new to world and changes everything. Yeah. Or you might do what Brennan's are doing and or Barry's have done. And just build something that's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions because of equity. Yes. Yeah. And only you can do that. Yeah. So I I, I struggle a little bit, which might just be because I've been lucky enough to be senior. Um, but I've had loads of difficult CFOs. Yeah. Um, I just try to make myself and the team indispensable and let them have that feeling of, yeah, but they might be right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and as you say, you didn't land senior. <laughs> <You> no, <laughs> you no, got I mean, there, I got, right? I got
1: <laughs> chewed out of a day in, day out, um, and made loads of mistakes. Yeah. And uh, but I think as well, if you're trying to do the right stuff, it become it's it's almost obvious to people. Yeah, you know, if you're playing the agenda, if you're playing the politics, then. It's obvious as well. It's yeah. as, You know, you see it every day in business. It's like she doesn't think that she thinks that I that's think, what they want yeah, yeah. to hear. Um, so that goes a little bit back to making that decision to commit to your craft and saying, like, this is what I believe in. And and sometimes that'll be wrong, mm-hmm. entirely wrong. Um, but you've got to be a good storyteller
0: internally and, and bring those folks with you. Committing to your craft, how do you keep up to date with everything that's going on? Um, Like reading, watching, listening or or what is it? Yeah, I guess I'm really lucky, right, to be in New York. So just the amount
1: of just thought leadership and and people you have access to to hear what's going on. So... um, but i think about what has happened in the last you know 5 years right so you know we we had the great digital debate and and okay we're we're all digital and it's all digital um and now we're into you know first party data and cookieless world and and uh, data privacy and and you know even last week we were having a bit of a yeah i suppose a role you know around one of the meeting rooms thinking what are we doing here you know we're trying to amass a huge chunk of first party data And now I'm starting to think maybe we're fixing yesterday's problem. In fact, we need to amass access to a bunch of wallets and digital wallets um, and get into blockchain in a completely different way because that's where it's going, right? As opposed to I'm now working on a lot of stuff to compensate for how data privacy has evolved, but that might not be the game anymore. Um, So you're just constantly trying to poke yourself to understand what's next. Um, And it's about putting yourself out there and what I've, how I try to keep up is by going to lots of stuff where I know absolutely nothing okay. about. it. Um, so at the moment, a lot of that is around Web three and NFTs, and uh, you know, and and how that world is going to change. What we do, because we we're in the business of like sociability and getting together, yeah, yeah. you know, inverted commas in real life over a beer. Um, but there is an amazing opportunity for where the web and commerce is going. Uh, so I try to go to a lot of stuff um where I know I don't know anything. Yeah. Um so I'll go to the web3 lunch, not the connected TV lunch because I kind of understand the, what's, what's going actually. on at Hulu or ESPN yeah. or whatever. Um but it's really tough. Like it's really tough, you know? Um because you're doing so many different things that we just didn't do five five years ago, three years ago. Um, I've got an in-house creative studio, which we built for efficiency. Okay. Um, you know, we're tiptoeing around in-housing programmatic, okay. um, which is very difficult decision to make because I'm, I think it makes sense functionally. But then I don't know what I would do with those. Team members' careers, right? Because I don't know what I where I send them, right? Right. Whereas if you're a brand manager, I know what I do Do with you you next, right? Yeah. Um, So, and I feel a bit of responsibility there, not to bring people in just for a transaction, yeah. Um, so yeah, keeping up is almost impossible. Um, and you have the day job as well, well that's you know. So every now and time. again I do kick back and think, uh, you know, I'd love a good old fashioned GRP and frequency bomb and life <laughs> would be easy, you know. Uh, go to go
0: to RTE and bomb the country, you know, but uh, it's not coming back anytime no, soon. No. No. And then I guess going back to some of the stuff you said earlier on with like having, you know, the interns and the 24 25 year olds like their ability to Understand these things a lot faster than certainly me. I don't know about you, but like, and so just having that around you as well must be incredibly helpful. Because they'll say something, you'd be like, "What?" Like I see my kids on iPads or whatever, and I'm just like, "I can barely use the PlayStation." (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, again, I didn't know
1: that. Right? Is the underused term, or or what is that? Um, it. You need a bit of bravery to sit in rooms, and none of us do it. It's it's human nature. Like none of us like to sit down and say, "I don't have a clue what's going on here." You know, um. And that, yeah, that takes some backbone to sit in places where you realize you just actually don't know what's going on. Now, you need to kind of work out what's going on. so we're very lucky that we're able to recruit, you know, really talented uh, people into the discipline. I, I mean, I'm always saying to the, you know, the, the brand managers like, listen, I, I used to do this, you know. And in my head, it's like five years ago. And I see them <laughs> looking at me now, and they're like, what w- what was a black and white TV? Like, the, you know, I'm ancient. Um, and I see them looking at me thinking, you didn't do this. And I'm thinking, I did. I used to do purchase orders. God, jeez. Um, so... Yeah, it's about dragging diversity and dragging different kind of people into the building. Um, So we, you know, we cherish and we love our nerds, right? And uh, we have nerds who are so proud and they're like, I am going to decode this for you because you just don't understand what's going on with blockchain, for example. Um, So we just celebrate learning and try to kind of have an environment where, I mean, even silly stuff like our WhatsApp group for the department, you know, it's on
0: fire right, because people okay. are just like,
1: "Did you see this? I Here's the story that. here." And it's a really easy way, yeah. as opposed to like, "Okay, let's do a lunch and learn," which yeah. we also will do. Yeah, yeah. But like sometimes the WhatsApp, you're like, "Holy cow! Look yeah. at what ESPN just did. Yeah. Um, look at what Skittles just did. Like so, whether it's inspiration or learning, um, and then we go to stuff. Um, COVID has made it difficult, and T and E makes it difficult, and expenses policy yes. make it difficult. You know, but w- we buy tickets to stuff we go to Cannes we go to the one show yeah. you know you know if people spend in you know 20 30 40 50 million dollars on creative i think it's okay if they yes. go to the one show yeah. because i want them to be better and yeah. if they spend a week looking at advertising great inspire them how could that yeah. be bad when you're then like okay go and make this yeah um so yeah we're trying to inspire people what's what's nice about the us role is the, the breadth of the disciplines. Like, So you're working on everything from, you know, programmatic on the media side and connected TV and sponsorship strategy through to influencers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: and our, our big passion at the moment is to really connect the dots. So, you know, what are we, how do we show up on ESPN uh, on TV? How do we then show up on the ESPN app, which is yeah. more traffic? Which is then, you know, which like the US Open, say for the tennis, yeah. right? So, how do you show up on TV? How do you show up in the app? How do you show up then on the wider digital landscape? How do you show up at the environment of the US Open itself? Yeah. And then, how do you make sure the cast of billions? where Heineken is embedded into the show, show up at the US Open to drive your influencer piece. Yeah, yeah. So we used to have a very siloed view of the world and now we'll put something like the US Open in the middle and say, how does every touch point make that So it's around that thing. Yeah. yeah. That's so much fun, right? Because you're like, holy holy cow, like what next, right? So conversation one is with Disney, uh, who, who are ESPN, um, and conversation two is, you, you know, with your talent agency who are getting you the cast of Succession. So yeah. Cousin Greg is coming to the US okay. Open. You know, for my team, it's like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. Because that's gold. Yeah. Um, how that's much, brilliant. again, how much yeah. fun is that? Like, I mean, that that that's a
0: Monday. Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> now, Wednesday is purchase orders <laughs> in Excel.
0: But that was Monday. That's great. Um, I know we've gone way over. Um, I want to ask you maybe one or two last questions anything out there that you're like this is utter nonsense <laughs> um
1: you know i oh, it's a great question i i think the utter nonsense piece or at least the the niggle for me was um the patronizing opportunistic stuff that flowed during covid right too many brands uh, just jumping into spaces that had nothing to do with them. Uh, you know, we open in a dystopian uh, wide and in these challenging times. I yeah. mean, just try harder. Yeah. And if it's not on brand, stay out. Okay. Uh, I found I got a bit upset through COVID at the kind of grubbiness of the discipline. That's, so, you know, right. there was just a lot of Mickey Mouse work um, capitalizing on what was a fundamentally difficult situation yeah. and a very difficult human situation. Um, I don't know if all of the brands who were doing all of that work had any right to be there and sometimes yeah. you just need to know your place. I found that a little bit, I, I think that put us back a little bit yeah. in terms of like, if you will, moral leadership if if that could ever be applied to the <laughs> discipline. I mean, okay, we're selling stuff. Um, I, on the flip side though, I'm just back from Cannes and the work is so brilliant and i see so much amazing work in purpose okay. but with a small p that brands are fixing things that are really really important but they're not fixing everything okay. they're just focusing in um and I, there was so much brilliant work uh, uh, around helping young girls to really blossom and to bloom so Nike doing work with you know customising your um, your exercise regime around your cycle okay. to make sure that you could be the best athlete you could okay. be but recognising that like women have different physiology yeah. and we can work with that to make you better Okay, um, you saw what Dove are doing with detoxify beauty right so trying to stop a generation of 12 to 15 year old girls getting toxic beauty advice yeah. online yeah 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 um, because that's what they're watching in their yeah, bedrooms when yeah. mom and dad are, you know, cooking dinner. Yeah. Um. So I was really encouraged by how brands are helping brands who are being really true to themselves are helping fix that's things. Authentic, things, right?
0: Fate. Because that's the problem I think with purpose is if it's not true, authentic. You know, because Dove have played a role kind yeah. of in 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 this for a long time. Yeah, right? it's right and on brand. It really is, um, and so you kind of look at that and go and it makes sense. But I like that small p versus the... Yeah, like, it's you know, not fix it's, everything. It's yeah. fix this thing. Yeah. And this thing
1: matters. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of... I mean, there's a lot of that kind of evolution. And then just, uh, you know, a lot of beautiful work being done. Um, I think the one that strikes me, I just find it a fascinating insight, is is the aerial work for Asia, which is share the load. You know, this, we talk about insights. We so yeah. just talk about facts. Like men are crap at doing the laundry. Why? Yeah. It's not gender based. It's not genetic. I yeah. can pick up the washing basket the same as my partner. Um, But you've a whole swathe of society where women disproportionately take care of domestic chores. Yeah. And what Ariel have done in India is, Trans- is, is is driven share the load. And even as like to have fun with it, they printed all the Aerial boxes for the last six months with men's names on it. So, like, I will bring brilliant. you home a box of Ariel and say, there you go, Connor. you can't oh, not do the laundry now because your <laughs> name's your on box. the box. Um, <laughs> but that's fixing a real issue, yeah, which yeah. is a bullshit issue. Like, you've got to lean in.
0: You know, this this isn't somebody else's job. You should do it too. Yeah. I'm um, going to ask you one last question, which is, I don't know who my next guest will be, but what question would you have for my next guest? <laughs> uh, that's a good... <laughs> so you got me working for you here.
1: Um, I think... It all at this level goes to leadership. So what do they find as the biggest unlocker of great work amongst the team? Because the work somehow magically comes out uh, but there's no formula. I don't think anyone yet understands this is how you get consistently amazing work. Yeah. It's, still, uh, it's still a bit of a lottery which makes it fascinating and makes it fun but I, I'm believe more and more it's about the team environment you create so that's what I'm always okay. listening for is like what kind of leader is doing what to get what out the other end yeah, in service yeah. of
0: the work Brilliant Johnny we could have stayed here for, for hours well I could have anyway you you <laughs> family stuff to do yeah. thank you so much genuinely for taking the time no to, to do this with me I really really appreciate great. it Great nice to be home great to see you As I walked out of the studio with Johnny, I was struck by his generosity, not only for doing this, but also for how he thinks about and talks about other people. He said, you don't have the right to get the best out of people, but it's clear when you spend time in his presence, how he does it. He is himself. Johnny has a career that many of us, I'm sure, look at and think that's the dream. But he has made it a reality. As he said, there was no master plan, and I believe that but he also didn't wait for things to happen. He and his family bravely took opportunities as they came their way. And you can tell he works hard at what he does. But underneath it all, he just loves it. He loves marketing and he's grateful. What a pleasure it was to get to spend time with them. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. Follow us on Twitter at that's underscore marketing. And if you or someone you know would be a great guest for the podcast, get in touch. I will add the email address into the show description. From me, Connor Byrne, until next episode, take care.